The following is a presentation of the Recycling Council of Alberta's 2019 Sea Change Conference held October 2nd to 4th in Jasper, Alberta. The RCA would like to thank our supporters for making this conference possible, including Platinum sponsor GFL Environmental and the sponsor of this session, Strathcona County. Ruben Anderson, a consultant on behavioral change and sustainability, will make you rethink the current recycling system in this mind-blowing session on compassionate systems. Okay, thank you all for coming this morning and listening to me. And thanks especially to Christina Seidel. She's seen me talk a couple times before. She almost saw me run out of town after one of my talks. So she brought me to Jasper, where it's uh, surrounded by mountains and there's nowhere to run. <laughs> uh, I'm going to explain what compassionate systems are today, and I'm going to talk a lot about behavior change. But first, I'm going to explain why everything you're doing is wrong, why even your hopes and dreams are doomed to fail, and why your children are angry. Uh, but first, just a bit about myself. I live in Victoria, B.C., which is the territory of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, the Songhees and Esquimalt First Nations. I got a degree in industrial design, which is design for mass production. I wanted to design durable, beautiful, sustainable products out of recycled materials, heirlooms, heirloom stuff. Um, and then I promptly got a job making crap in China. Uh, we lived in a hotel in Shenzhen and visited factories that are manufacturing garbage at a massive scale. So here's a picture from one of these factories. Uh, just one of their many product lines is recirculating water fountains. These are totally unrecyclable, and they made hundreds of thousands of them in uh, hundreds of products, hundreds of different product lines. Uh, so I designed uh, a very small part of the junk that's coming back to haunt our landfills. I didn't design a fountain, but uh, lots of picture frames and lamps and jewelry boxes. I once opened up a photo album in the uh, gift shop of the uh, museum, the Art Gallery of Vancouver, and I was surprised to find that I designed it. So that's the prototype there. I think that may be the world's first pop-up photo album. What an accomplishment. So that was very interesting work, but it was hard to get out of bed in the morning to go kill the planet. So I, uh, this all got me interested in consumerism and human behavior, and I ended up working in the City of Vancouver Sustainability Group. After that, I worked with the regional district, Metro Vancouver, where I researched behavior change and tested pilot projects on pro-environmental behavior like recycling and water conservation. Uh, I actually worked on the first pilots of food scraps recycling and on the regional rollout for the food scraps program. Uh, and as Leah said, at one of our multifamily test sites, the recycling rate went up 250%. So that was a huge success. Uh, and by the way, I would love to talk about multifamily if anybody wants to later, because I think the narrative about multifamily is totally wrong. Uh, before I spend too much time talking about behavior, let me define what behavior is. This is from Wikipedia. I actually quite like this. Behavior is the response of the system or organism to various stimuli or inputs, whether internal or external, conscious or subconscious, overt or covert, and voluntary or involuntary. So everything is behavior, and we want to change behavior. We want people to behave in a different way. Sometimes it's us, sometimes it's our kids, sometimes it's uh, our society, sometimes it's just one person in a position of power. But we want change, and that means that some or all of us will have to behave differently. So, what causes behavior change? The most common story we tell is that behavior is driven by education. Education provides us with new information. We analyze the information and that changes our values. And based on these new values, we choose new behavior. 
Think, choose, act. This is also a theory of change. So this is a hypothesis of how we think change happens. So if the theory of change is correct, uh, we should be able to educate people, and then they'll behave differently. Uh, And this theory is incredibly easy to disprove. (laughs) Uh, Lack of education is seldom the problem. It's a myth. Several years ago, I put together my top 10 myths of behavior change. This is uh, what I heard on the street. This is what I heard in focus groups and surveys. Uh, This is how we tell the story of why other people are not doing what we think they should do. People are lazy. People don't care. It's all about education. People won't change until you hit them in the wallet. It's all about carrots and sticks. The system works. It's the people that are the problem. Immigrants don't care. It's all about convenience. Regulation is the only way to change things, and for business, it's all about the bottom line. So these myths present a slightly different theory of change, so let me group them a bit. So it's all about education, and therefore, when education does not result in change behavior, that must mean that people are stupid, lazy, uncaring, immoral, and possibly even foreign. (laughs) And therefore... Since uh, people are lazy and stupid and uncaring, you must use carrots and sticks to change their behavior. So this theory of change is more like won't learn, won't act, must be bribed and beaten. (laughs) So we've taken our definition of behavior and crossed out all of this and replaced it with education. And then when this doesn't work, we scribble through the whole thing and say behavior is a response to being bribed and beaten. So this is bananas. And there are decades of research that contradict this. The most important comes from Daniel Kahneman, who's famous for writing Thinking Fast and Slow. Kahneman says we have evolved two cognitive systems. So system one is fast, intuitive, and emotional. And system two is slow and rational. Another popularizer of this work is Jonathan Haidt, who tries to give some scale to system one and system two with the metaphor of a big, strong elephant uh, with a rational rider in charge. Uh, Except to be accurate... The elephant should be 10 times larger and as fast as a racehorse, and uh, it's often the one in charge, not the rider. So other than those three fundamental flaws to the metaphor, it's uh, useful. But, but why two systems? Why doesn't education work? Why don't we just think carefully about everything like the rational people we tell ourselves we are? Uh, so to understand this, I want to spend a couple of minutes looking at the evolution of the brain. So here's a chart of skull volume showing our hominid ancestors. So you can see that four million years ago, we had a tiny little brain. There's a lot of speculation why our brain started growing, but uh, one of the main guesses is that we started eating lots of good Alberta beef, and that, uh, (laughs) along with cooking with fire, uh, the dense calories and nutrients enabled our brain to grow. But to help understand behavior, we need to put this chart in a little more context. So here's 500 million years. Half a billion years ago, uh, the reptilian brain evolved. So this is really just kind of a fat bump on our spinal cord. This is what keeps us breathing. It keeps our heart beating. It regulates our body temperature. Just the very basic stuff of life. 360 million years ago, fishes walked out on land, and the first mammals appeared about 200 million years ago. So in these mammals, the reptilian brain grew in some areas, and it developed a limbic system. So this is system one. This is the elephant. It's often called the emotional brain, and this is not where we do conscious, future-oriented, rational planning. Uh, Now, you know why they do medical experiments on mice? 
It's because 80 million years ago, we had a common ancestor. So 80 million years ago, we were mice. <laughs> uh, and we still share quite a bit of DNA with mice. So 120 million years after our limbic system evolved, we were still mice. And it took another 76 million years to get to this uh, small-brained ancestor, and maybe a couple more million years to use fire and start getting lots of dense nutrients that allow us to really grow a big brain. We've only been modern humans, homo sapiens, for 40,000 years. <laughs> so our brain looks at some kind of recycling, and it's like, nah, I've been doing this for 200 million years. I'm not going to change now. <laughs> so uh, our brain evolved to deal with a lion attack, not with a blue box. The last part of our brain to evolve is the prefrontal cortex. So this is where conscious thought about planning and decision-making occurs. This is the rider. It's very energy-hungry. Uh, your brain uses about 20% of the energy that you eat. Dr. Roy Baumeister has researched will willpower and decision-making, and uh, he's found our prefrontal cortex can only get enough glucose for a few hours of conscious thought each day. Uh, Baumeister finds that whenever we have to think about something or make a decision of any kind, it depletes our capacity for future decision-making. So the more decisions we have to make in a short period of time, the worse our decisions become. So here's Baumeister with all these cupcakes. Uh, he's done a bunch of research where he asked people if they would like a sweet or a healthy snack. Uh, and the people that say no to the sweet go on to make bad decisions and tests. They used up their brain energy. Uh, they used it up on impulse control, resisting the urge to eat cake. So you stick to your diet, and then you make a bunch of bad choices afterwards. <laughs> so Baumeister shows that uh, how we think about behavior is quite wrong. Our brains really are like a muscle. So a thought is actually a physical connection between hundreds of thousands of neurons. And our brains can be exhausted. So we can only run so far, we can only jump so high, and we can only think so much. This is the physical reason why we have evolved the two cognitive systems that Kahneman has researched. Thoughts are not effortless, like a wisp of smoke just floating through our head. Thoughts are very effortful, like running a marathon. And just like our muscles, our brain needs food to do its work. This study looked at parole rates. They found that parole rates were highest after mealtimes. So the judge has a snack and a little rest, and parole rates jump up and the unlucky person who gets a parole hearing right before lunch goes back to jail. Uh, now, just a small tangent. I said uh, part of my talk title could be why your children are angry. Nobody has any expectations for babies. They eat and sleep and cry. But when they're toddlers, we start getting a little more angry when they don't behave properly. Uh, by the time they are teenagers, we have very little patience left. Uh, but here's the thing. The prefrontal cortex does not finish growing until about age 25. So you look at your teenagers. Maybe they're even taller than you. Uh, they're articulate. They're learning really fast. But inside the body of that young adult is still a, a, a not very developed brain. They literally do not have impulse control. They literally cannot plan into the future. And so when you get angry at them for being stupid teenagers, they are just doing the best they can. They're doing the best they can with a very powerful emotional brain and a very weak and still growing rational brain. Uh, on the other end of life, some of you may have parents with dementia. 
Again, conflict is created by expectations that are greater than their cognitive capacity can handle. So we have this 200 million year old emotional, intuitive, subconscious, social, and responsive brain that we use most of the time to save energy whenever possible. And then we have the much newer, very energy-hungry, rational system that we use only when it's absolutely necessary. Now, this matters because almost everything we try to do to change behavior is very energy-intensive. We ask people to remember to turn things on or off. We ask people to educate themselves, to post, to tweet. We need them to focus their attention so that they can sort recycling properly and take shorter showers and ride their bike. In the typical approach, we want you to pay attention. So look at the words. It says it right there. Attention comes at a cost. It's expensive. There's a price that must be paid. And when you spend your attention on something, you have less attention to spend on something else. So you're listening to me right now. I'm draining your brain, and your afternoon is going to be shot. (laughs) So our brain knows there's a price to be paid, uh, and it's actually quite defensive about its resources. So you know how you get that feeling that someone isn't listening to you? They probably just aren't listening to you. Is it because they're a jerk, or because they don't like you, or they think you're stupid? Or is it because they've used up their attention span at work? Uh, Or maybe their brain is defending what little resources it has left so that it can use it later. This is why using facts and logic is not a very effective way of changing behavior. Uh, A logical argument requires a lot of processing power, and uh, so it's easier just to ignore the facts (laughs) and defend your brain's resources. The rest just get filtered out. There's some great research on the scale of the filtering our mind does. So as we sit here, about 40 million bits of information are bombarding our senses from all directions. But we're really only conscious of about 60 bits. The rest are being filtered. If necessary, they're being acted on through habits or reflexes, all subconsciously. So let's take a look at that another way. 0.00015% of the information is getting through to your conscious brain. Looking at it another way, if we made your prefrontal cortex the size of a bread box, the rest of your brain would be the size of the Milky Way. So what are the chances of your project being one of the 60 bits that makes it through the filter instead of one of the 40 million that gets stuck? Now, when I talk about this, the thing that always seems to stick in people's minds is that they can only think for a few hours every day, but they get paid for eight. So I just want to stress that it's not that we aren't doing work for the other hours each day. It's just that we're running more on autopilot. So we're filing things, we're replying to routine emails, we're doing things that we can do more automatically. So I've talked about my top 10 myths, and I've explained how reluctant our brain is to spend uh, its very small amount of conscious energy and attention. So how do we get anything done? We perform tens of thousands of behaviors every day from the tiny to the huge. So I think we can break up the drivers of our behavior into three general fields. Most of our behavior is determined by our physical context. If the road is straight, you drive fast. If the road is windy, you slow down. Light switches are all at the same height. We eat the food we can buy in the grocery store. We respond to our physical context, and we don't even question it. The next largest piece of behavior is determined by our social context. This sort of choice is less like thinking, and it's more like catching a cold. 
Uh, if there's a lot of people sneezing around you, your chances of catching a cold go way, way up. Uh, if you work in the engineering department, your chances of wearing khaki pants and a blue shirt go way up. If you work in marketing, your chances of wearing funky eyeglasses go up. So the social proof is that khaki pants are all around you, and so you catch khaki pants. <laughs> and then lastly, we have this puny little speck at the top of the pyramid here. This is the stuff we stop and think about. This is the stuff we analyze. And some estimates are that this controls between 5% and 0.001% of our behavior. Okay, so to help understand these different drivers of behavior, I'm just going to throw a bunch of common strategies onto the respective areas. So education, documentary films, books, petitions, crowdfunding, pricing mechanisms, this is all up uh, in the conscious tip, the tiny little area. Things like fashion, music, sports, politics, religion, what brand of phone you use, uh, the culture we live in, this is all in our social context. Big system stuff like energy generations, vehicle efficiency standards, uh, building efficiency standards, building codes, huge amounts of the physical world we live in, the doorknobs, the chairs, lights, tables, switches, uh, the countertops, sinks, taps. Uh, this is all in the physical context, the system choice. Pension programs, set it and forget it. That's uh, in the system choice. Um, campaigns like Pink Shirt, uh, Pink Ribbon, and Movember, these are all asking for your attention. So they're up in the tiny little conscious area. There are some social aspects to them. They're greatly complicated by the fact that they don't actually do anything. So growing a mustache in November is not connected to curing cancer. It raises awareness, but awareness doesn't cure cancer. So there's uh, some challenges to those. <laughs> uh, Public consultation, shower timers. Do you guys have these in Alberta? So uh, BC Hydro hands out these little egg timers that you suction cup to your shower wall. And the idea is, is that you're going to turn on the hot water, get into this glorious cascade of hot water, and then turn the egg timer over. And three minutes later, when it runs out, you're going to get out. So obviously, that's just an enormous demand on your willpower. <laughs> uh, whereas just changing the shower head to a low-flow head... Uh, changes the system. And so you might be able to spend 20 minutes in the shower and still use less water than three minutes with your egg timer and uh, a higher flow shower head. Uh, advertising, lots of persuasive advertising is up in the tip, and there is a bunch of social uh, advertising, that um, identity advertising that is uh, in the middle there. Speed limits. So the speed limit signs by the side of the highway are up in the tip. They're asking for your attention to tell you what to do. Uh, whereas, you know, when you're driving down the road in a pack of cars, that's a social choice. So the, the social context that you're in is determining how fast you're driving. Uh, whereas some things like uh, small scooters, like, you know, the 49cc scooters that have speed limiters on them, they can only go 30 kilometers an hour or 50 kilometers an hour. So that is a physical change. The physical system is controlling your driving speed. So that's three different ways to control driving speed in these three different areas. Um, Seatbelts. So... Seatbelts used to be an option that you had to pay for. If you didn't want your kids to go flying through the windshield, you had to spend an extra 100 bucks on seatbelts. Um, and that, of course, was bananas. And so seatbelts became mandatory. And now all cars have to come with seatbelts. But still, only about 80% of people are using the seatbelts. And so they started adding airbags. And now airbags are mandatory. So the physical system has changed to make the, uh, the act of driving, the act of crashing, uh, safer. Uh, recycling, education, signage, prompts, feedback, these are all up in the tip. 
Uh, social norms and social proof of recycling are in the middle, social choice. Things like packaging regulations is a system change. So it just changes what is coming in that has to be dealt with. Uh, nutritional labeling. So you know on a can of food it has that little nutritional chart or if you, uh, if you go into like a fast food restaurant they're supposed to have the chart that you can request to say how many calories are in your uh, cheeseburger. That is all obviously very conscious and I think it's something like 0.02% of customers in fast food restaurants asked to see the nutritional labeling. Um, green labeling systems, corporate so social responsibility, this is all up in the tip. Um, feedback systems like uh, apps or Fitbits. This is all requiring your conscious attention. Social media, you know, so if you're on Facebook and you say, you should read this, you should uh, watch this film, you should blah blah that is all very attention demanding. Whereas social media can also be used as social proof, like I am in the gym. Not, not an article, you should go to the gym, but a photo like, whew, I'm at the gym working out. So that's two different ways of using social media consciously or socially. Um, petition sites like Avaz and Upworthy, those are all obviously very energy demanding, very attention demanding, whereas uh, street protests are social proof. So um, of course they can work both ways. If you have a giant street protest where 100,000 people go out, that's sending a signal of very strong social proof. If you have a lame street protest where only 10 people show up with signs, what they are proving socially is that that issue is in fact not worth caring about. Uh, so it's a real uh, double-edged sword <laughs> in that. Uh, so I just want to pause to appreciate how much we're trying to jam into this tiny little portion of our behavior, you know, maybe zero, zero, one percent of our behavior. So that feels pretty overwhelming. So would you rather try to work in the crowded teeny little speck at the top or at the big wide base of the pyramid? So the reality of our life is that because of the physical limitations of our brain, we save energy by ignoring huge amounts of information. It's just filtered out. And the chances are the information you want people to see is going to be filtered out. We also save energy by following a social group and allowing them to make some of our choices. We save energy by building habits and using rules of thumb. We are very, very reluctant to spend energy to stop and think. And so most of all, we save energy by following the structure of the physical system. So that usually means when people are not behaving properly, they're in fact just following the system. This is a really critical insight from design thinking. If people are throwing recyclables in the garbage or throwing garbage in the recycling, it's because the system does not work. It's not their fault, it's your fault. It's manufacturer's fault. We've built the system backwards, so it works for machines and markets, not for human beings. So here's my message of compassion. Everybody knows that changing the system is very powerful, but it's also very difficult to change. It can feel impossible. We also have the classic fish and water problem where we're so used to the system we live in that we don't see them. We seldom consider where these systems came from, who designed them, or whether we have any other choices. And so when what we're doing doesn't work, we tend to do the same thing bigger, harder, and faster. And then we're surprised when it still doesn't work. Changing the system is not only the most effective way to change behavior. Because of our physical limits, it's often the only way. 
So we can build what I call compassionate systems when we design systems that are fundamentally loving of human beings. They, they respect our natural limits. By building compassionate systems, we can take the load off of us so that we can save our thinking for the things that we care about. So the question for us is, how do we create change with a system that's accepted without question? How do we shape behavior in a way that's as obvious as which side of the road we drive on? Okay, so that's the big picture behavior change. Now, I'm going to take a few minutes to talk about the implications on garbage and recycling. I hope we can talk about this uh, over beers tonight. Um, and first, I'm going to talk about a few pet peeves. So these are ways we can increase the effectiveness of our current not very good system by making it work with our brains. So the first is timing. Governments often worry about overwhelming people, and so change is uh, dribbled out over time. Like a new product is added to the recycling schedule every six months or a year. Um, I hope you can see now that this could not be a worse idea. <laughs> In fact, this approach is designed to make people fail. It would be um, much better to do a substantial change every two or three or five years that really uh, is noticeable, as opposed to being a small change that is just filtered out. Another common problem is that every organization wants to have their own branded communications material. This results in uh, different icons and photos, layouts, text, colors, that are all trying to communicate the same thing. And we need to stop doing this. We're trying to build habits and automatic reactions. And we need a standardized trigger for these habits. Uh, so while I was at Metro, we developed a full set of icons, photos, recycling signage, and a universal booklet. It was a language-free booklet, all icons, all of which is free to download and use. So this standardized icon set should be used across the province and would ideally be used across the country. Uh, I just want to talk about... <laughs> I want to talk about photos for a minute because it really matters uh, when you use them. On the bin is the wrong time to use photos. Photos are extremely rich in information and so they're very likely to be ignored. They're filtered out because they overwhelm the user. So we've all watched this. Someone walks up to a waste sorting station with an armload of garbage and they get kind of paralyzed and then they dump everything in the garbage can. Uh, so standing at the waste sorting station, it's too late to do education. That education needed to happen months or years earlier. So that when someone has garbage in their hands, they can just act. They can be, you know, they're just triggered by the color of the icon and they know what to do. Uh, so it was mentioned earlier that my colleague and I got a 250% increase in recycling at one of our test sites. So here's how we did it. We changed the physical context. It wasn't even a very exciting system change, but it turned out to be quite important. So at that time, Metro had a diversion goal of 70%. And then I'd go out to these sites, and I would calculate how big the dumpster was and how often it was tipped, and I would calculate how big the totes were in the recycling and food scrap streams. And what I found, very consistently across dozens of sites, is that 90% of the space was in the garbage dumpster, and food scraps and recycling combined were only 10%. So can someone explain to me how you're going to get 70% of the material in 10% of the space? So for our project, we shrunk dumpsters and we added recycling totes. And they filled up the totes. So we added cardboard dumpsters and more recycling totes. And they filled up those totes. And then we added food scraps and more recycling totes. We didn't need to do any communications. We didn't need to do any social norming. The residents just needed more infrastructure. 
they wanted to recycle, but our system was preventing them. Now, maybe it's the same here in, uh, in Alberta. In BC, if you went into a lot of ICI settings, there wasn't even a blue box. So I can tell you this, if there's no blue box, your recycling rate is going to be very close to zero. How is it possible that a garbage hauler can drop off a dumpster but isn't required to provide recycling and food scraps collection at the same time? In Vancouver ICI garbage, the top two streams are compostable, and the next four streams are blue box paper. And yet we let haulers deliver only a dumpster, <laughs> and then we wag our fingers at people for not recycling. So those are a few of my pet peeves about how our current recycling system is not designed for actual human behavior. We should be ashamed of wagging our fingers at people. They're doing the best they can in the system that we have built. If it isn't good enough, then we need to build a better system. Uh, in case I haven't been clear enough, I think our current system is very, very bad. Uh, it can't work. When we talk to individuals about individual changes they can make in their individual behavior, we create collective failure. So I spent this whole talk showing why voting with your dollar can't scale, why education or persuasion can't scale, and why the compassionate thing to do is to design waste out of existence. Uh, I use this photograph because I can't think of anything more hopeless than trying to deal with this pro problem than by making lampshades out of egg cartons. We must stop dealing with the end of the pipe. If we're forever reacting to whatever stupid products the marketing department dreams up, we will forever fail. We must go to the beginning and start dictating what materials are allowed in and how they're allowed to be used. Now, wouldn't extended producer responsibility help with that? <laughs> Tough crowd. <laughs> Uh, it hasn't in BC, so in many sectors it seems the costs are simply passed on to the consumer and there's no need for the manufacturer to change their product. So the producer helps pay for collection and recycling, which is great, but there's no change in consumption patterns. So in 2017, numbers in BC showed an increase in per capita waste generation. And we're not even talking about hard stuff here. So the largest fraction of garbage is still food and yard scraps. The next fraction is still blue box paper. The next one is probably wood. Like seriously, it's 2019, and we can't imagine that construction and demolition sites could separate their garbage, let alone deconstruct a building. How is it even legal to drop a free newspaper stuffed full of flyers on your doorstep without asking you if you want it? You should have to subscribe to that garbage. I can go to the mall right now and buy a printer that only prints on one side of the paper, and then we're mystified why there's so much paper waste. You can buy a plastic bottle of pop and use it once, or you can buy a glass bottle of beer that has a 97% return rate and can be refilled a couple of dozen times. I remember the local Coca-Cola bottling plant. This is not ancient history. These are system choices we made. If you want to talk about water bottles, the system solution is water fountains, not recycling. Draft beer is zero waste. <laughs> So these are small examples of our mindset and the way we've built the system. We charge duty at the border. Why don't we charge for the amount of packaging being imported? We have food safety standards. Why don't we have recycle and repair standards? We have a building code. Why don't we have a product code? Thank you very much.
Thank you for listening to this Sea Change Conference session. Search for On the Cusp, Alberta's circular podcast on iTunes and Google Play, or visit recycle.ab.ca to see the full slides and audio presentation.